0: Just a quick message from me, Rebecca Radiel and I will be quick, I promise. Just a few things I want to say. I'm really excited to share the new series, Series 2 of Killing Time. There's loads of exciting episodes in store, and I just know you're going to love it. Secondly, the reviews have been brilliant. Thank you so much for that. If you haven't done it yet, a five-star review would be much appreciated. And finally, 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 if you would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon account, which I bang on about all the time. (laughs) Don't feel pressured, but it would be wonderful. You can find us on www.patreon.com Dot com forward slash killing underscore time. <sighs> And breathe. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adiel and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, wartime murder. It's the 15th of June 1940 and we're 11 days after the Dunkirk evacuation. The War Cabinet meets in London to discuss what to do about the Channel Islands. With the Germans dominating most of coastal France, the Cabinet makes the astonishing decision to withdraw troops from the islands and all but let the Germans claim them. One of these islands is Sark, and within a year of German occupation, its inhabitants would be plunged into one of the most extraordinary whodunnits of the 20th century, when a young German doctor is murdered. that reads like something from a Christie novel. To investigate it I'm joined by Duncan Barrett, historian and author of Hitler's British Isles. We're actually having this conversation in the evening aren't we and I think the light's kind of drawing in in my neck of the woods at the moment which is Chester and I feel we're about to kind of immerse ourselves in a really beautiful sunny location (laughs) so it feels a bit strange but you describe Sark so fantastically in your book. And I just wonder for listeners, could you give give a sense of what the place was like in the 1940s?
1: Sure. I mean, to be perfectly honest, Sark in the 1940s was not massively different to Sark in 2020. I mean, Sark is kind of an island lost in time, almost. It feels like you're living in a sort of It's almost like Lark Rise to Candleford. If you imagine that kind of vision of kind of bucolic pastoral bliss. Of all the Channel Islands, it's of the kind of inhabited Channel Islands, it's the smallest, it's the most kind of beautiful and perfect. It only had a population of about 600-odd people uh, then, and, and now, I think, pretty similar. So it's absolutely stunning. I mean, I spent several months researching my book, Living in Guernsey, but trips to Sark were always an absolute highlight. You go there, there are no cars, so you can hear and see the kind of nature all around you. It's a dark sky island, so there's no light pollution, so you can see the stars at night. But you just really notice, one of the things I noticed is walking along the kind of dirt paths, which are what sort of crisscross the island, the number of butterflies, wildlife, you know, everything. It is it is like kind of unspoilt England, if you know what I mean, but set in the most spectacular landscape of, of with the sea all around you. So it, it is a truly amazing place. And that really wasn't lost on the Germans. I mean, the Germans who arrived there, one of them described it as eine Kleine paradise, a little paradise. And I think it was just this magical island. They couldn't quite believe that they'd been posted there.
0: Well, you do. You describe it in your book as a paradise, don't you, as well? And I think think it's really interesting to think about this, think about the island nature of this place and how it was kind of cut off from, from the mainland and um, even from the other larger Channel Islands that we, we tend to think of um, first when, when we think of German occupation. But what was, the, what was the relationship with the locals and the Germans like during this time? And did this differ to the situation in Guernsey and, and Jersey and places?
1: Well, the occupation in the Channel Islands generally was what was sometimes known as a model occupation. So compared to, say, the occupation in France or Holland, elsewhere in occupied Europe, it was a relatively soft occupation. Now, that didn't mean that things didn't sometimes get a bit nasty and and kind of bad things didn't happen. But generally speaking, the Germans were on pretty good behaviour. The occupation in Sark was kind of even more model than that, if you know what I mean. I mean, Sark was under the umbrella of the bailiwick of Guernsey, so it was kind of bundled in with Guernsey to a certain extent. But it had this very strange old feudal setup. It was run by a woman called the Dame, Sybil Hathaway, the Dame of Sark. And when the Germans first arrived to occupy the island, they'd occupied Guernsey and Jersey by this point, and they came over to occupy Sark. She basically pulled this amazing trick on them of playing into this respect that they had for her as this kind of almost royal sort of aristocratic feudal leader. The Germans came to her to her house, the seigneury and she had her husband and her pulled their chairs, their dining room chairs, up to the end of the room to make kind of thrones at the end of the room, basically, and had the Germans come and, and had them introduced, you know, announced by their servants as if they were kind of guests visiting to, to seek an audience with the Dame. So she sort of played this trick quite early on and the Germans were completely bamboozled by it. So I think partly for that reason, partly because she spoke Reasonably good German and got on quite well with the Germans who were stationed there. And partly actually for a reason that becomes very relevant in relation to this story, which is that the local doctor on Sark, they had a British doctor who left in the evacuation period before the occupation. They tried several times to replace him and basically couldn't find anyone. So what happened was the German army ended up responsible for the medical welfare of the people on Sark. So there was. A closer relationship, in a sense, between the locals and the Germans than there was in any of the other islands, because they were helping them. You know, if you were sick, you went to the German doctor to get treatment.
0: Could you tell me about the doctor who sadly lost his life? Could you tell me a little bit about his background and, um, you know, how, how people received him on the island?
1: So the German army doctor was a man called August Goebel. He was a lieutenant in the German forces. He was quite young. He was an attractive guy. He was very charming. He was very popular with the locals, but particularly, I'd say he was popular with the local women. He was a bit flirty, had a little bit of a reputation for having, if not relationships, then at least some kind of dalliances with a number of the local women. And he received a lot of letters from local women, you know, partly thanking him for his medical care and so on. But I think there was a suggestion there was a little bit more going on there. So he was popular with the locals, but not. Universally popular among the other Germans, his Batman, for example, a man called Johann Uhl. There was a sense that he could be a little, little bit of a slave driver. He wasn't necessarily the easiest person to work for.
0: So, so he was generally well received, but obviously there were a few a few issues with some of the the Germans that were living there as well. And now let's get to the the actual incident. Let's get to the the moment of his murder. Can you describe the scene and um, what the initial reaction was to the shock news? So
1: what happened was on the morning of the 29th of April, 1942, Goebbels' Batman, Johann Uhl, burst into the company HQ and announced that his master had been murdered. He'd found him when he went in to take him his breakfast that morning with his head bludgeoned in, basically, and and lying in a pool of blood, stone dead. And Uhl was in a complete state at this point. You know, he was Really, quite shocked having discovered his master in that state. So, they sent a man called Corporal Metz back to the scene of the crime to investigate. To check, one of the things that they were quite concerned about was to check that it hadn't been a suicide. So Metz was asked to go and inspect uh, Goebbels' pistol and see whether that had been fired because there had been cases of German soldiers committing suicide, particularly if they were receiving orders to transfer them to the Eastern Front. No one wanted to be sent to the Eastern Front. Everyone was very, very happy on Sark, And there had been cases of soldiers who'd actually killed themselves when they received those transfer orders. So that was the first thing to investigate was, was it a murder or was there a possibility of suicide so Metz was sent off to check the pistol and to investigate the scene of the crime and he came back saying that he'd found a probable murder weapon which was a bloody golf club which was you know lying in the room and appeared to have been used to bludgeon Gerbel to death in his sleep
0: Okay, So after that, then, this this kind of explodes, doesn't it? And there's obviously a murder case. Does the island go into a lockdown? I'm presuming with the the limited number of people that were living there that it might be a little bit easier to try and figure out what was going on. I mean, could you paint the scene and, and describe what was, you know, what happened afterwards with the investigation?
1: So then within a matter of hours, the Geheimfeldpolizei, the plainclothes police, arrive on the island. These are people who are known colloquially by the locals as the Gestapo. They're not technically Gestapo, but they kind of play on that. They are these quite scary plainclothes police officers. And they begin this process of kind of interrogating and investigating and so on, led by a man called Wulfel, who was notorious throughout the Channel Islands as the Wolf of the Gestapo. So this kind of terrifying police inspector, basically. They shut down the island, which is relatively easy to do. There's one harbour, they have a boat, you know, semi-regularly coming from Guernsey, but they basically, they stop that, They, they stop all the boats from coming and going. So you end up with this very sort of Agatha Christie type situation where you've got this island, there's 650 people there, one of them is a murderer, and they're going to try and have to get to the bottom of it, who it might be. Now, immediately, this island where you've had Germans and locals living in pretty much in harmony, really, you know, getting on extremely well, quite close relations between the two sides, suddenly... All this suspicion is brought up. The locals are convinced it must be one of Goebbels' colleagues in the German army who's killed him. The Germans are convinced it must be one of the locals, maybe an aggrieved husband from one of these women that the lieutenant was kind of flirting with or whatever. So immediately these kind of lines are drawn and this... Paradise, basically, this kind of very soft occupation suddenly becomes a bit harder because men are forced to report every day, you, you know, to check that they haven't done a runner, basically, or tried to do a runner with their ID cards. Every house on the island is searched. There's this massive investigation uh, and everyone suddenly finds themselves under suspicion, effectively. And in particular, the the Germans focus on Uhl, the Batman of the, of the guy who's died, who becomes their kind of prime suspect. They feel he has a motive insofar as his master, although he was well-liked amongst the locals, was known as a bit of a slave driver and that therefore he might have felt a lot of resentment towards him. He had the opportunity insofar as he slept in the room next door and could easily have snuck in in the night and murdered him. So he really becomes the prime suspect and he's subjected to this horrific interrogation in the dead man's room. They take him in there and interrogate him day and night and day and night, you know, for many days on end basically, until he emerges a kind of broken man. In the meantime, they discover a second suspect, who's a man called Lankman, the company armourer, and they find in the post which is sent out, his, his mail is being censored, and they read in the censored post a letter from him to his wife saying, the island has been freed from a monster. Basically, he there's no love lost between him and Goebbels, who's been murdered, and he's actually quite relieved. This is because he had put in for some medical leave, and Goebel, as the doctor, had actually turned him down. So again, this was another German who had a little bit of beef with him and so he sort of now becomes the prime suspect or at least a secondary suspect when some blood-stained newspaper is found in his armory as well in the meantime they discover that Ool has apparently disappeared so again there's kind of suspicion attached to him somehow he's he's vanished now the island is locked down there's no way he could have taken a boat off the island could he have tried to swim for it you, you know what is going on he's missing for a period of days until eventually he's discovered dead at the bottom of the well in the Va clo which is the house basically where the doctor had been staying as well, having seemingly committed suicide. And the understanding is that basically, in fact, Ul turned out to be innocent, but he was so convinced based on the interrogation that he'd received from the uh, Geheimfeld Polizia that they were planning to sort of stitch him up for the murder, that he decided to take his own life. He couldn't bear it anymore. And then what happens is after the suicide, Corporal Metz, who is the guy who was sent to investigate the scene of the crime, is sent back to Germany to break the news to Uhl's family and and let them know that he's committed suicide and what's happened and and to let them know the whole story. Metz has kind of, throughout this whole investigation, been extremely helpful, making himself available to the investigators, helping in any way he can, being a sort of go-between, offering in a situation like that to go and break the difficult news and so on. Really trying to be as helpful as he possibly can be, for Mm. reasons that we might come on to later.
0: (laughs) So, OK, so it wasn't all and the investigation continues. How do we get to a point where we actually find out who the culprit is? What's the sequence of events?
1: Let me try and run you through this. <laughs> it is quite complicated. I kind of remember when I was writing this chapter that it's the, like try to keep all these people in mind without giving it away exactly what actually happened. This is why I'm not a crime yeah. writer, clearly. So basically, with all out of the picture, Lankman is now the prime suspect. And Metz has been telling the investigators he knows that Goebel would sometimes send his golf clubs, which is believed to be the, the murder weapon still at this point, I think, to Lankman for repair. But then an interesting thing crops up, which is that a forensic investigation suggests that the golf club is actually a red herring that's been placed there, because the wound that was inflicted on Gerbel clearly came from a sharper implement, and they suggest it might have been an army, a German army cleaver that had been used. So they kind of, now the search begins potentially for a new murder weapon as well. Lankman meanwhile is being subjected to this gruelling interrogation. He's beginning to look as much of a wretch as Ul was. Uh, He's developed a twitch in one eye from the stress of it all. But with quite canny thinking, he decides to appeal that there's a special appeal. It's called the Führergesuch, which is something that a soldier could invoke, which is basically to demand that new detectives are brought from Berlin. So Lankman does this. He announces he's sort of claiming his petition in this way. He's making this special petition. And the investigators have no choice but to agree to it. They have to allow this to happen. So two men are sent out from the Kripo, the Criminalpolizei in Berlin. There are many days of travel as they kind of make their way across Europe, make their way over to Guernsey, hop on the tiny boat from Guernsey all the way over to Sark and eventually they arrive to sort of take over the investigation from the Geheimpolizei and eventually they arrive to take over the investigation from the Geheimpolizei and so these are a couple of men uh, led by an inspector called Bernd Wehner who now takes over the investigation. He starts sort of investigating everything again. He begins by going to the scene of the murder, the, the VA Clo, which I should say, incidentally, is now a bed and breakfast. And I didn't realise when I was doing my research in Sark, I hadn't kind of put two and two together because I'd, I'd come across this story and I was also interviewing a number of people there. And I stayed at this bed and breakfast. And at some point I realised this name is very familiar. And I'd actually been staying in the same house where this murder took place. Oh my gosh. Now, they don't trade on this. There could be, you know, in other places, obviously there's that kind of ghoulish tourism industry in Sark where it's all very genteel and lovely and beautiful and and as I say like paradise they don't really trade on their kind of murderous past Wow! Oh my but gosh. so so there you go so if you're interested you can go and stay there today and it's a very nice bed and breakfast but anyway so Vayner and and the other detective from berlin go to search because they're on the lookout for this cleaver this probable murder weapon and, the, and they begin searching around they start by searching you know the house and the grounds and metz again is being very helpful he's showing them around he's showing them where he found the body he's, he's sort of leading them around the house and so on and at one point, when they're standing outside in the grounds, Vayner notices that Metz is is standing on top of a manhole cover, and he says, "Oh, what's you know what's down there? What's what's where does that manhole lead to?" And they find out that this is you know the the sewer or whatever for the, um, the cesspit for the uh, building, and he decides, "Well, this is an obvious place. If I was trying to hide a murder weapon, this would be a good place to do it." So they go down there, they search the cesspit, disgusting job, and finally they find this cleaver, as expected covered in all kinds of unmentionable things, but also still flecked with blood from Lieutenant Goebel. So obviously this was in fact the real murder weapon. The the golf clubs were a red herring. They then begin a new round of interviews. And in particular, they focus on interviewing Lankman, who is still the prime suspect at this point. But they feel, having conducted these interviews, that they're kind of convinced he's innocent. As much as he seems very stressed, as much as he's kind of losing it a bit, just as Ool did before him, Something about him convinces them that he's actually telling the truth, that he's kind of being set up, you know, that maybe this evidence was planted. He says he has no idea how this bloodstained newspaper found its way into his workshop, despite the fact that he, you know, he he says, yes, it's true. I was actually relieved when the guy was killed, but that doesn't mean that I killed him. And so the investigators start to think that maybe this guy is innocent and he's actually being set up by someone else. So what they decide to do is to re-interview everyone who's been interviewed previously in the case by the Geheim Field Polizei and to sort of go through the whole process again and during that round of interviews what happens is when they come to interview Metz who's the guy who's been helping them all along who's been aiding the investigation the inspector at a little bit of a loss at one point he 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 asked him to sort of talk him through what happened on the day of the mo- of the murder or on the morning after the murder and so he says well you know i was sent from company headquarters i was sent to the the scene of the crime i was asked to inspect the man's pistol to see if he'd fired it or not and the inspector says to him OK, just show me how you would do that. Take my pistol. And he hands him his pistol. And he says, inspect it and tell me whether it's been fired or not. And Metz takes the pistol. He takes it over to the window. He opens up the chamber. He checks you know, how many bullets there are in there and so on. And then he hands it back to him. And at that moment, the inspector, Vayner has a sudden flash of insight. He remembers that from the forensic investigation of the crime scene, they tested the pistol for fingerprints and they found no fingerprints whatsoever on on the pistol. And he realises, having just witnessed Metz with a pistol in his hand, there's no way he could have checked it uh, to see if it had been fired without leaving fingerprints on it. So he realises that Metz clearly never checked the pistol as he was ordered to. And the only reasonable reason that he could have for not checking it is that he knew it hadn't been fired and he didn't need to. And the only way he could know that it hadn't been fired is if he was the one who'd committed the murder. So he has this flash of inspiration and announces, he shouts at him, Lankman is free, it was you who killed the doctor. In this very kind of, you know, almost sort of Hercule Poirot or (laughs) the German equivalent kind of way. And Metz is, you know, stunned, basically, that his, his secret has been rumbled. He's been, all this time he's been trying to find a place for himself right at the heart of the investigation so he could always know what was going on he's implicated one man in the murder who's ended up dead by suicide he's tried to implicate another man by planting evidence in his workshop and and nearly as far as he, he could see got this man executed for the crime and now finally this detective in this moment of brilliance has kind of caught him in this mistake that he made right back on you know, day one when he was supposedly sent to investigate the scene of the crime. And so they haul him off to Berlin for interrogation and eventually he cracks and they discover what was really going on and what what his motive was and so on. It turns out basically Metz, who was quite an awkward, a sort of not a charming, uh, attractive man like the doctor was, was very jealous of him basically. And he got into this Very strange habit of, because the doctor would get all these letters from these women who were, you you know, rather keen on him, he started opening the doctor's letters and then he started replying and impersonating the doctor himself because he was sort of getting kicks out of it, basically, Uh, living this fantasy of being the kind of sexy, handsome doctor who everyone, all the women were kind of slightly in love with. The doctor found out and was furious and threatened to have him demoted. And again, there's this kind of looming specter of the Eastern Front. Uh, Metz was terrified. If the doctor followed through on his threat to report him for what he'd been doing, he could lose his cushy posting in Sark. He could end up sent off to the Eastern Front where, you know, people were going away and not coming back, basically. And that was the reason that he decided he had to kill him before he could kind of make good on that threat, basically. So throughout the whole investigation, he had done his best to sort of direct the investigators towards. A prime suspect who wasn't him while supposedly being as helpful and as, you know, as he possibly could, even going to break the news to Wool's family that he'd committed suicide. You know, so he's this real creepy kind of snake at the centre of the investigation, really, the guy who seems to be the most helpful helping the detectives, but actually turns out to be just trying to manipulate them or trying to throw suspicion on anyone other than himself.
0: Good Lord, I mean this is such a case. Has it has it been made into a film? It needs to be a film.
1: I really think it should be. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I came across this story. And I have to say, you you know, of all the stories in my book, this one is absolutely largely down to a guy. I took this story pretty much in its entirety. I mean, I interviewed everyone, obviously, that I spoke to in the islands remembered this because it was a huge moment in the occupation for them and quite a traumatic and scary one. So I talked to everyone about what it was like, you know, living under this, uh, you know, a kind of lockdown uh, of the island, uh, living under suspicion for this period of time. But Really, all the research on this was done several years ago by a man called Richard Letitier who sadly died a few years ago, so I wasn't able to talk to him about it, but he was the one who kind of uncovered all the details of this story and put it in an appendix in the back of a small book about a couple who live on Sark, and that's where I came across it, basically. So it's it's a story that's very widely known in Sark, but I don't think anyone outside of Sark has ever even heard of it but I absolutely I mean I read it and I couldn't believe it wasn't you know an Agatha Christie story or something because it's got all those ingredients it's got the you know first of all the fact that it's this beautiful you know paradise spoiled by this bloody crime it's got this kind of weird sexual dimension in that you've got the, the jealous soldier who you, you know he's impersonating his more handsome and more kind of attractive colleague you've got the fact that I found so fascinating about it is the idea that you're on an island, the island is closed off, you know, it, it is, it's almost like, um, and then there were none or something, you, you know, one of those people yeah, did it. Yeah. Uh, and everyone suddenly starts looking at their neighbours and thinking, well, you know, was it you? And particularly with the Germans and the locals, it sows these seeds of suspicion between the two sides that, you know... For the most part, they assume it must be the Germans. Assume it must be one of the locals, and the locals assume it must be one of the Germans. And so suddenly, this kind of model relationship between the two sides begins to break down because there's this massive crack in the kind of good relations between the two of them. Because you know someone has committed this unspeakable crime, and until it's solved, that kind of cozy occupation that they're trying to run in the island is never going to really be possible again because you know this crime has kind of shattered that somehow.
0: It's it's great. I think listeners, if if anybody's out there listening, um, we need to start a campaign to get Duncan's story turned into a film, <laughs> and for Duncan to be paid millions and millions of pounds for it, and maybe that would be you nice. Know, yeah, we can throw some out, <laughs> out the way of the listeners as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just just finally, because I realise I've kept you for a while, but just one final thing. That's all what right. What happened to Metz in the end? Was he? I'm assuming he was executed for, for the crime.
1: He was, yes. So he was interrogated. So Metz was taken to Berlin for interrogation. Uh, He finally cracked and revealed all about the crime and and his motive and so on. And then he was brought back to Guernsey and actually executed by firing squad there. And his body was buried without ceremony uh, in a churchyard in Guernsey.
0: Wow. Okay. Oh well. Thank you, Duncan. This has been absolutely fascinating. So many twists and turns. And um, yeah. Great. I'm gonna be That's listening right. back to this podcast myself. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you can make sense of it all. <laughs> the Germans continued to occupy the Channel Islands until the 9th of May 1945, the day after Churchill made his famous speech declaring the war to be over. <laughs>